Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello. We are 100% certain this is episode 67. We are. Of the Thinklings Podcast. <laughs> Tim, Tim texted yesterday saying, this is the 67th episode. He's just so excited about this episode right now. He's super pumped for episode 67. <laughs> I think like I just eye rolled. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? Do what you got. Do what you got. Um, okay, so yeah, welcome to episode 67. I feel like I'm a little loud. That is, looks loud to me. I don't know. I can't tell. Okay. Can so, we start over? We never start over, Tim. We, yeah, We're always if, live. If that audio was horrible, you know, just just deal with it. I'm gonna move it a little bit to the side. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Uh, okay, so a couple things. One, happy tenth day of Balrog. The ten days of Balrog, my fire demon came to me. So the reason why it's the tenth day is because it's on the fifteenth of January that Gandalf falls from the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and begins his 10-day battle with the Balrog. So today would be the day that officially he becomes Gandalf the White. He slew the Balrog. Yes. Um, and so I was thinking about that. And I was like, if, if this was like Christmas and it was a real holiday, which it's not yet, but if it was, like, what would it be a celebration of? And here's what I thought. So it'd be like, a cel- one, it's a celebration of goofy nonsense. So there's, there's get that out of the way. That's good. Because That's we like when Tim's eye, eye rolls uh, hit the heavens. So there we go. <laughs> just for you, Tim. Uh, but number two, like thinking like mythologically for Tolkien or even like in Lewis, like how could you celebrate that idea and like what would it mean? And I came up with this. So in, in, in Narnia, there's like Eustace's undragoning. Mm. And then there's also uh, in The Great Divorce by Lewis, there's like that one person who has a little dragon thing and they kill it. Like he finally gives it up and it becomes this white stallion. And we actually mm-hmm. asked David Downing about that in the episode. Like, do you think that there's like a correlation of those ideas? And he's like, oh yeah. Like, and so plugging that into like a celebration of Balrog, like what is it? It is a celebration of the victory in Christ and the spirit that transforms us into the image of Christ. Ooh. So like it's the defeat of the Balrog that we celebrate and upon defeating Gandalf becomes more pure. Mm. And so I think that like trying to, you know, baptize this idea. Oh boy. Imaginatively to use Lewis's own terms. But (laughs) anyway, so what do you think? Do you think that'd be a worthy celebration of like, that's, that is the celebration of Balrog. I think, I think celebration of sanctification. I think, I mean, we're, we're clearly inserting our own meaning. So let's just be honest. Yeah. But that's in myth. That's fine. Exactly. So if we're going to insert our own meaning, we're going to isogete. Uh, this is the kind I like because it's got the yeah. goofiness, but it then we're, it's kind of something important. It's the beauty of myth is that there are many, many concurrent meanings. What? Do you want my input? I do, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, what does Balrog mean? Do we even know what Balrog no. means? Uh, so this I'm whole gonna... idea of like slaying a dragon or slaying a demon is a historic, even a biblical concept. You have the casting down of Satan, the great serpent, so yes. in Revelation 12. So this whole mythical idea, and not, not myth as in the Bible is false, but mythical as in um, meta-narrative, great story. 
mm. and slaying the Balrog, certainly. Okay. Yeah. But who's slaying the Balrog or kicking it out of heaven in the what, mythical in, sense? In the in the in the myth or um in the mystical structure of Middle Earth, what does Gandalf represent? Uh I can say I've started through the Silmarillion in uh reading the creation songs and uh Iluvatar and the the Valar and uh where, you know, you think that that structure, like I mean, I think that easiest correlation simple simplistically would be say he's an angel so it'd be one angel fighting another angel and it's yeah. it's interesting allegory analogy allegory let's go with allegory yeah yeah you have well, fun with it but, but tolkien would not call any of his right. writing allegory. you're you're making it an allegory i'm yeah i'm i'm taking a meaning out and like uh, assigning it specific meaning mm-hmm. So in typical Tolkien fashion, he's bringing together <laughs> lots of ideas, and it's not enough that I can give you a definitive answer right now. So that sure. we'll have to table that. But it looks like he's looking table at the etymology Old of English, Ron. Latin, and perhaps even Norse. Mm. Uh, there's an epithet on Odin's tomb that says he was fire-eyed, and it's Balagur, and it almost sounds like Balrog. But Ooh. not it's it's not it's similar and so this is all just speculation. So yeah. I'll do, we'll do more research before we know something like that for sure. Well, there, I think there's something to that because I think that might have something to do with why he only had one eye. I think there might be like a specific story of him, like descending and how that eye gets plucked. I remember mm. hearing something about that, listening to some Tolkien Ooh. Lewis. Stuff. Oh, Odin. Okay. Yeah, of Odin. I was like thinking of the Balrog. Yeah, okay, I thought gotcha. the Balrog. No, Balrog is both, but like Odin yeah. having maybe yeah, he. Right. I don't. I don't know. Someone out there who has a background in Norse mythology, give us a call. Mm. Um, so that was number one. Happy tenth day of Balrog, um, and upon the end of our celebration of Balrog, it is a great reminder to be sanctified. Okay, uh, number two, we are close. Close. We're setting. We're set. So uh, to intro this idea, happy twenty twenty two. Did you guys make any New Year's resolutions? No. No? None. Like none? No. Nope. Not even like actually making them, but in your mind, did you think about making any? No. I haven't passed years, but no, not at all. Well, that's a killer to the conversation. Um, <laughs> what about you, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Every year, I like to look back over the previous year and and see, hopefully, noticeable growth in my life, sure. like spiritual growth in my life. And then I live in expectation that there would be similar growth in the coming year. But there's no real New Year's resolution like it's time for me to lose weight. I want to read so many books or any of that kind of jazz. Okay. You you mentioned what I wanted you to mention for my segue to work. Okay, you're got A lot it. of people make New Year's resolutions about trimming their weight. And uh, I think a New Year's resolution of the Thinklings podcast would be we want to trim our weight a little bit. We want our we want our timing to be a little better. Uh, I think we should we're gonna try to work on that. Our timing? Yeah, like how long they are. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I think that's. We've had I, some really fat episodes lately. Yeah, and I, I have heard it from a, from yeah. one or two. And, and I feel that too as I edit it. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it's easier to edit a skinny podcast. You you know you could make it shorter if you edited out all that. Those Ball, no, 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 no. I'm saying like the the what episode we're on. We, that actually that would actually. What episode are we on? Oh my word! <laughs> Horrendous. <laughs> Digressions are fun. Okay, but all so that was that was the second thing. Um. But but as a part of that, um, so that that's a that's a goal we have. But there's another goal, podcast goal. We're close 
to 100 reviews in Apple. I think we're in like the 70 range. Ooh. And so we re- I just want to say as a podcaster, the visibility, uh, the metric in podcasting apps, uh, having more ratings and reviews helps other people find this. So if you think this is good and you think uh, there are other people that should listen to it, there's a way that you can help other people find it. And that is you in Apple giving it a five-star review and leaving a comment about why you love it. And we're in, what's our actual number? It's 75. 75. So we need 25. And so here's what we're going to do. How kind. Um, If you, if you, um, if you leave us a review in the next, uh, you know, month, we'll be able to see that. We'll say, maybe let's just it's say end of February. End of February, and uh, we'll give out we'll give out two t-shirts to new reviews. Okay, we'll we'll read and give t-shirts, and we might also probably hundred percent will, <laughs> as prizes, give away some books from the Faith Bookstore, uh, which you can peruse right now at fbbcbooks.com. Boom, boom, books and business. Uh, so the <laughs> getting back to the the goal, the goal would be to get to a hundred. Um, but we would love to have more than a hundred. But so if you listen to this podcast, uh, probably if you listen to it at Apple, you don't have to listen to it at Apple, but anyone with a phone can go to Apple. Well, does Android, can you even get to Apple podcasts? You can't. So Android users, no, they're not. You can do it in Google or Spotify. Sorry, Termin. Um, but if you have an iPhone or can access Apple reviews, you can actually probably do it through Google, like Googling Apple podcasts. You could go to an actual website instead of an app and like leave a review. But to be eligible for the prize, you have to leave a five-star review and you have to comment. You can't just click the five stars. You have to actually type something in there. Uh, here's something you might say, man, those episodes about the days of Balrog were my absolute favorite. <laughs> Do that again next year. You, you can put that in the review, five-star, boom, done. I really love the biblical content coming from the Thinklings podcast. <laughs> We will have a lot. The end of this podcast will be much better than the beginning. Talk about the Shema. So you can now yeah. you can now rate shows in Spotify also, which yes, they couldn't before. I don't, or if they did before, I don't I know, know how, do how that curates. I don't know how that gets collected though. The episode is so, getting longer. Yeah, I would just. This is specifically an Apple one. Yeah, and then maybe later we'll do a Spotify. Okay, so with that, we have some Thinklings business to attend to. Books and business. Okay, so I'm starting us off. The content today is coming from Deuteronomy 6.4, but my books and business is not what I've been reading, but what I've been writing. I'm working um, on my book, Song of Songs for Singles. It's editing chapter four, I think, about awakening love. I think this uh, topic showed up in the last podcast because Charlie mentioned the adjuration refrain in Song of Songs 2, 7, 3, 5, and 8, 4. Uh, this refrain occurs three times in the Song of Songs about not awakening love. So my my chapter on this section I really didn't like, and so I I edited it this weekend. Um, what does it mean to love, and what does it mean to not awaken love? I kind of interact with that idea in the chapter, and um, and I would even just encourage you now just to think through uh, if you're single, particularly, what does it mean to not awaken love? Uh, so many in the previous generation lived through the purity movement, which encouraged singles to wait for intimacy until they were married. And so is that what it means to not awaken love, to wait to be intimate until marriage? And I argue the answer is no. Uh, It's much broader than just intimacy. It's not to awaken love. So think through what is love and how are you supposed to keep that sleeping that's going to affect not just your 
physical relationship with a boy, girlfriend, boyfriend, or but also your mind and your speech. Some people, just the very words that they say is going to awaken love in that other person. So you need to be careful of what you say. Uh, so that's just a little bit of snapshot on what I've been writing. And I started a Bible study on last Thursday, Song of Songs for Couples. I have, I've done a fair amount with singles, but I haven't done anything really with married couples. And so before publishing the book, we wanted to do a Bible study with some married couples uh, through it. And there, we had like 15 to 20 couples sign in to a Zoom meeting. And uh, so I'm working through the Bible study there too. So that's what I've been doing. And that's what I brought for my books and business. Andy, did you have something you wanted to say? I thought, I thought you unmuted your mic to jump in with an idea. Yeah, you know, is there a month that's like a writer's month or something? It's like October. I think that's a thing like that. Yeah, Nanny Rimo, Nanny National, uh, National Writing Month. I'm getting that wrong. There's there's a month. I think it's November. Nano Nano Rimo, National Writing Month, and you're supposed to write something every day for 30 days. And at the end, if you do it, you get like a, you can say you've, you completed NaNoWriMo or something like that. Yeah. So N-A- my, my thought N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. was, N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. We, we, did, we, did, we do want to talk about books every time, but this was also kind of meant oh. to be an encouragement of writing as well. And we don't really talk about that that often. I mean, there's been a few times we've brought up some like little things, but so, I mean, we're all kind of working on different things. And so maybe, maybe we'll look into that. Maybe mm-hmm. like we'll have a month where we emphasize writing yeah. instead of just the reading of books. It's a good idea. It's it's National Novel Writing Month. I couldn't think of the acronym. Gotcha. But, but it's like October or November. Sure. So. I'm not writing a novel. Sorry. Yeah. But October or November writing. is a good time for writing. October is a good month for me to write. I think it's October because November is ink. No, excuse me. I think it's November because Inktober. October is Inktober. Yeah, That's where you draw right. a month once a day. So I think it's that. So yeah. we could do, we could do, our, you know, National Thinklings writing. month or something. Yeah. What month is more writing? I don't know. Anyway, just thought. Uh, okay, my books and business. I have. If you remember, we had Doctor Boyd on a while ago, and uh, uh, as I so affectionately referred to him today as Professor Slytherin. Yeah. Because he went to Baylor. Baylor's color is green, which I think then each of us should pick one of the other three houses. Then we have a full representation. Ooh, I, mine is Ravenclaw. You that know when that? I when I took the test online, I was a Ravenclaw. Okay. He's a Hufflepuff. That's a, just that makes me a Gryffindor. That's your Gryffindor. He's a Hufflepuff. I'm the one that gets to slay giant <laughs> serpents. Why in the world am I Hufflepuff? That's I don't know. It just really seemed like guys, a wonderful thing guys, for you to be. Guys, we're trying to trim oh, brother. the weight of he the He just podcast. wants to be Gryffindor. <laughs> you can be whatever you want. We can do I'll be Hufflepuff if you want. I will be the Hufflepuff. Oh, no. I don't I don't really care. I don't know what it means. <laughs> I'll be Hufflepuff. This is beautiful. Okay. So, <laughs> it sounds anyway, little, but in that same. Fluffy. <laughs> you could call me Fluffy. Wasn't Fluffy the three-headed dog? Yes. <laughs> Surfer. Yes. Nice choice. I'm fluffy. Man, we just Looks in business to you. We didn't even go down a rabbit trail. That was like a rabbit that ate us and then like hopped into another universe and even spewed us out. Um, anyway, uh, so in that episode, with one of those episodes with Dr. Boyd, we talked about Leif Unger. And he highly recommended, I think he actually has it for one of his classes that you read the book Peace Like a River, and there's another books and business somewhere floating out there where we talked about that. I actually got a couple other of Leif's books, and this one is So Brave, Young, and Handsome. And um, I'm not exactly 100% sure yet what the title is referring to, but the book is good. It's, I don't know how to give you, so he is an author from Minnesota. 
the main character in this book is an author from Minnesota. Oh. And the author in the book, he writes one thing, kind of gets famous, and makes all these promises to write another book, and then everything he submits isn't working. Which is interesting, because I think this is his second book, Leif's Mm. second book. So the author in the book, from Minnesota, trying to write a second book, this is Leif Unger's second book, it's just a weird correlation. What ends up happening is the guy in the story goes on this long journey with one of their neighbors in Minnesota who is trying to find a long-lost love that he left many, many years ago. He wants to apologize. The problem is that guy was a bandito. He was a train robber, and it takes place in 1912. And so their journey isn't, oh, go find her, apologize, come home. It's much richer than that. And so I'll just say, much like the other one, uh, Peace Like a River, it does have a, a certain virtuous beauty to the way it's written. And I, I, there are times where you're reading the phrases and the depictions of the scenery and what's going on, and you're just like kind of captured by it. So I do think there's that quality again. I don't think it's as good as the other one. Um, I threw it up on my Instagram. I can't remember what I gave it. If it was a five or a six, but it is good. But it's it's a fictional story. Um, I'm sure that he has some intended meanings to be drawn out of it. Um, but I tr- I'm trying. I don't. I don't try to mine those out on the first read. I'm just reading the story. And so I'll probably read it again maybe next year and um, see if I, I think through, maybe catch some of those themes again. Um, there's some interesting characters in the book. So yeah, it's So Brave, Young, and Handsome by Leif Unger. I th- I think I'd say like a five or a six on the scale. So yeah. So my book today is like not a book. It's a pamphlet. Well, it looks like a book, but he calls it a pamphlet. But... Can, can I actually go back to something for a second? I did determine what the length, page length of a book should be. Oh, brother. If you, I Googled and I tried to ascertain what the original page lengths were of the first printing of the Lord of the Ring books. This episode's getting too fat. It is, but hold on. Give me one second. So you add those pages up and you divide by six because Tolkien himself divided each work into two books and that gets you to 206 point something so i rounded 207 so my new goal for the year is uh 75 books and at the rate of 207 pages Mm. so if you multiply that it's like 15,000 something or something or other and comes down to like 40 50 pages a day and uh, so this i want to finish 75 titles but say i didn't get there but i actually read 75 equivalents of 207 books I would count that a victory. Anyway, so but so your so your pamphlet there could contribute in page length. Well, it's more like it's like sixty pages. So, I mean, that's it's not nothing. And I would say like if you read uh, like the Abolition of Man is only eighty pages, but it reads like it's three hundred and twenty. Yeah. I read so, my daughter two Mo Williams books this weekend. Count them, Tim. <laughs> You know what those are? Not even a little bit. <laughs> is it uh, like those books that Andy likes? What's that author's name? Uh, H. Uh, uh, H. L. Ray. H. No, yeah. no, no. H. A. Ray. H. H. A. Ray. Yeah, yeah, it's H. A. Ray. The Quality whole, books. The whole book's probably like fifty words. So just so you know. <laughs> that's a throwback right there. <laughs> it is a throwback. So my book this week is "Art for God's Sake" by Philip Ryken, a call to recover the arts. 
I've read this before for a class I took a while back. I'm rereading it and taking heavy notes. So even though it's only 60 pages, I'm only half done. And so I'm not going to say anything about it this week. I'll finish it by next week and give you more content, probably a little bit more. He's trying to carve out a space for art within Christianity. I have another book for the beauty of the church that I just got by edited by O. David Taylor or David O. Taylor, I think. And he's doing the same thing. And it's a compendium. It was like a, a retreat in Texas in 2010 and, and uh, like a conference. And there were like a bunch of speakers and they each contributed a chapter. What was interesting is that Jeremy Begme has a chapter who he writes a book called the peculiar orthodoxy about beauty and art and whatnot. And then there's another guy you might've heard of Eugene Peterson who writes a chapter, obviously that paragon of conservatism. But anyways, I'm working through that book slowly. I kind of have an art kick going. And so I picked this one up. I read this in in compilation with another book back in the day. So I'm half done. It's intriguing. He's trying to call you back to seeing art as valuable in the Christian world. He has four principles uh, of theology of the arts. Number one, the artist's call and the artist's gift come from God. Number two, God loves all kinds of art. Number three, God maintains high standards for goodness, truth, and beauty. And number four, art is for the glory of God. I'm halfway through the book, so I've covered um, the first two principles, and he has a chapter for each of those. And I would say that it is good at points, and at other points, it's um, it's a it's a short book, and so there's probably more I'd want him to say. So anyways, I'm letting it sink in. So next week, I'll give you some more info, but art for God's sake, kind of fascinating. So in this episode, I'm going to walk you through Deuteronomy 6.4. That's the Shema. Um, and here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So a lot of people go to this passage and they argue that God is a, um, is a, what's the word, singularity, or what's the technical? The unity. Unity. Of the God. unity of God from Deuteronomy 6.4. So um, I think it's actually communicating something else. I'm not denying the Trinity, but just I think a different uh, passages would better support the Trinitarian concept of God. Uh, so I encourage you to listen. I also encourage you to be challenged uh, spiritually by the Word of God and being totally devoted to the Lord. You know, um, I've been listening to actually Harry Potter with my children, and I'm regularly... Um, well played, Fluffy. Well played. Currently in the... Uh, the one after the Goblet of Fire, uh, the Hor- Order of the Phoenix. That's it. Oh, that was a good one. Professor Umbridge. And Ooh. just from a teacher's perspective, how critiquing Professor Umbridge and how she te- treats her, her students and what biblical theology of teaching is, but then how Harry even responds to her authoritarian, brutal uh, perspective and how you would handle a teacher like that in that kind of a situation it's completely devoid of um, it's completely devoid of a fear of God and just being devoted to the Lord and just thinking through like reading through that book and my children listening to it and talking to them about it how being completely devoted to God is is such a foundational concept in education and in all areas of life so I would encourage you just as you work as I, as we go through this episode to be encouraged and uh, motivated spiritually to grow in your relationship with God and be completely devoted to him. Nothing matters but the Lord and the Lord alone. Let's have a conversation about the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, is the most important verse in the Jewish person's life. They recite the Shema every evening. 
the Shema is read is in Deuteronomy 6 4 and it reads Hear, O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one that is the Shema this statement um, this statement has been uh, argued to be a statement of God's unity uh, because the text clearly states Hear, O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one but this passage um, it really doesn't fit the context of Deuteronomy 6, that it's speaking of the unity of God. And I want to just help you to, I, wanna, I want us to think about, what is the Shema communicating? And we're going to look at a couple of other passages where the Shema occurs. And I hope that as we work through this text and think about the Shema, that you'd have a better understanding of this text and have a better understanding of what it means um, to be a disciple of the Lord. You know, speaking of discipleship, Charlie's doing this uh, study on discipleship. This is connected to being a disciple of the Lord. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 is often just kind of ripped out of context. What is going on in Deuteronomy 6? I'm going to start in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. Okay, so Israel's going into the land, and hey, these are the laws. This is what you're supposed to do. And they need to learn it. They need to know these laws. And then verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. And the fear of the Lord is an important theological concept that we've talked about on the podcast before. And maybe we'll talk about that again, but not right now. Uh, But that you might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. See, the fear of the Lord leads to obeying the law of the Lord. Uh, you and your son, your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. So that's Deuteronomy 6.2. Then Deuteronomy 6.3, Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe the law, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Deuteronomy 6.1-3 is speaking about obeying the commandments, fearing the Lord, and and then living in in a generational way in the land. And then you have the Shema in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Listen up. This is an imperative. It's a command. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it seems to be a kind of an odd contextually to make this statement that the Lord is one is this statement of God's unity. Well, what does it mean that the Lord is one? Let's look at the next verse, okay? The next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Very important Old Testament theological verse. Jesus quotes it a few times in the New Testament. It reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Okay, so this idea of fearing the Lord, this idea of loving the Lord, this idea of obeying the law, all right, this is all connected. And right in the middle of fearing God, loving God, and obeying the law, you have the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So what is that saying? What does that mean, that the Lord is one? Now, before I explain to you a little bit, because I know everybody's pretty much, (laughs) they're always understood this to be the statement of the unity of God. By the way, I'm not denying the Trinity. All right, I do believe that God is a unity, and there are a multitude of Old Testament passages that speak of that unity. 
even in Deuteronomy right before, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I should read this quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. So right in Deuteronomy chapter 4, there's no other God, there's just one, the Lord. So yes, I do still believe in the unity of God. But Deuteronomy 6, 4, what is it communicating? This phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that phrase, the Lord is one, occurs elsewhere in the scriptures. And I want to take you there. I'm going to go to Zechariah chapter 14. In Zechariah 14, we have this eschatological uh, setting. Okay, the Lord returns. He descends to mount to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives splits. Uh, the enemies of Israel are routed. And then you have a lot of stuff, but it builds up to verse 9. The Lord, I'm going to read, this is uh, Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. That's your phrase. Okay? Jeremy, or Zechariah 14, 9 is a restatement of the Shema. So I'm going to read it again. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Okay, so when the Lord is the king over all the earth, how many gods are there? It's like the Lord, and it's only the Lord. It's only him, okay? In that day, it will be, it will be this. And what will it be? It will be that the Lord is one. That's what it will be. And furthermore, then it further explains, because the name is a major Old Testament theological theme. And worthy of your study, maybe I'll do a podcast sometime on it, okay? But that last statement in verse 9 is, his name is one as well. So in what way is the Lord one or his name one? And I would contend that his name is one and the Lord is one, as in he is the one, like the only one. And that's what Deuteronomy 6.4 is stating. It's not a statement about God's unity. It's a statement about God, about the whole complete devotion to the Lord. I'm going to go back. Think through Deuteronomy chapter 6, okay? It's talking about fearing the Lord, okay? It's talking about loving the Lord. It's talking about obeying his law. Well, well, what, what, is, what is your heart attitude, okay? What is your relationship to God amongst all of those things, okay? Well, listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord alone. It's a complete wholesale devotion to God and only God. We have lost this in our Christian churches. The worldliness that has permeated the church is not a Deuteronomy 6.4 kind of devotion. The love for the Lord, the fear of God coupled with the obedience of God's law comes from a devoted person who truly believes that the Lord is the only one. It is the Lord alone. This is the message from Zechariah 14, 9. When God sets up his kingdom on the earth, what's going to matter? The Lord. 
alone. Okay, do you see that message? And that's actually how we should be living right now. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. I love the Shema. It's a, it's a, it's a great theological message that, that has huge practical implications. As you examine your life and you see the worldliness that's permeated, uh, permeated your life, you need to expunge that worldliness from your life and be completely devoted to the Lord. That's what Israel is admonished to do in Deuteronomy 6.4. That's the way it will be at the end of time. And that's what the believer is supposed to be do in the church today. Turn to James chapter 2. I don't feel like I'm preaching. I'm not preaching. It's a podcast, but I'm kind of preaching. I've gotten a little preachy here. So it's like a preach cast instead of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. All right. So in, in James chapter two, we have this whole, your, your, your faith is dead because you have no works. Okay. The faith and works and really controversial passage, right? Well, within all of this, you have, um, you know, Abraham as being an example I'm going to pick it up at verse, um, I'm going to start at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? It's right there in James. And what is he saying? They're saying that they believe that God and God alone. But guess what? Their works are not matching it. Here in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Yes, the Lord and the Lord alone. And so what is the driving force for the Christian's life? Wholesale, complete devotion to God. The Lord is the Lord, and he is the Lord alone. It was that way for, it was supposed to be that way for Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4. It's supposed to be that way today for the church in James chapter 2. And when the Lord Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom, Zechariah 14 explains that it will be that way. So what do you guys think of that? got lots of thoughts lots and lots of thoughts so uh andy feel free to just jump in at any time because i have one two three four thing five things dive in charlie so we'll just start with so those three passages deuteronomy 6 4 Uh zechariah 14 Mm -hmm. james 2 they all use this idea which andy and i were just having fun kind of catching the flow yeah. of the Bible study. Like this is Seriously. this is why you study things because you see connections and how it actually connects to theology in very unique ways. You know, Zechariah 14, which I have an anecdote on that passage specifically. Um, I love which, your anecdotes. Do, do I have so permission excited. to share this anecdote of Zechariah 14? It has nothing to do with what you just said. Oh, yes. Other than it references Zechariah I give you permission, Charlie. Fine, whatever. So We outvote Tim. But so the connection that Tim is making is eschatological, is that Jesus returns, and this is at the end of the tribulation, 
And actually, Dr. Myron made a big point about this when he would teach on the Olivet Discourse. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. And a lot of times people want to take that idea of saved and bring it into like a justification, salvific uh, church sense. But in the Olivet Discourse, if he's addressing Jewish listeners, at the end of the tribulation, they will be saved. Why? Because right at the end of the tribulation, Zechariah 14 happens. Jesus is there, and the armies of Antichrist have uh, hemmed in God's people. And then, boom, we split the mountain, and they are saved because Jesus came back. So that's a really cool thing. That's not the anecdote, though. So I had a, I had a Jehovah's Witness at my house once, and uh, Jehovah's Witness deny the deity of Christ. And so I was like, how, how would I demonstrate that Jesus is God? And Zechariah 14 is clearly referencing Jesus. And why is that? Does God the Father have literal feet? Negative. So how would God the Father place his feet on the Mount of Olives, which is a literal mountain? He won't. And so, but what is the word that's used in that passage of the of God? Feet? Is that what you're after? No, the name, <laughs> the name of God. Not feet. <laughs> it's the Lord. Oh, oh. Yes. Uh-huh. it's the it's Lord's Lord. personal name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeho- well, Jehovah, but Jehovah the way they pronounce it. And and I so what I actually did with that uh, Jehovah's Witness is I was like, so you believe God the Father's God, right? And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> department of Redundancy Department. And I was like, okay, so what do we call him in the Old Testament? He's in the Lord. I'm like, yeah. And so like, for example, Job 38, when it's like the Lord came and spoke to Job, you'd say that's God the Father, right? And you just look through that and it's, when Jehovah is the name used, most Bibles, it's all caps, Lord. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's like all of these are saying, that's God the Father, right? Yeah. I was like, okay. So let's look at Zechariah 14. And it's a, and the Lord, Jehovah, mm-hmm. will put his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it will split in two. I was like, so is that God the Father? It's like, yep. I'm like, he has feet? And, Got him. And and what I if you could imagine like some clockwork or machination with gears turning, and the gears at that point jammed, and it was like, <laughs> and I I could see these gears trying to go behind the eyelids, and it was just like, and he's like, I don't know. Can I give you a machination a gears thing? Yeah. So you're riding your bike down the sidewalk. We used to do this to our friends. And they go by, and you take a stick, and you put it in the spokes, and then it quickly stops it, and you oh, go end over Oh, that is end. horrible. It is horrible, and we were horrible kids. You get trashed. But I feel like that's more like what you did to that poor guy. You just yeah. stuck the, like, right there, and boom. And this is also the same Jehovah Witness who, after my uh, first year of Greek oh, no. at Faith, oh, uh, no. I literally went home for Christmas break the day before. What did we do on Friday, Andy? Uh, we grade the exam. Yep. So I've just graded my Greek two or Greek one final. Wake up the next morning and here's a Jehovah Witness sitting at the kitchen table with my father, and he's saying all these things. And you know I've studied the theology that they believe, and you know, and I'm like, okay, and I just taken a Christology exam that week from Dr. Cole, and so I'm like, I'm geared for the, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, 
and he's explaining all of his end times views and, and I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, okay. And he's like, well, you guys have a nice day and gets up to, to walk out. I'm like, actually, hold on, hold on. Can I ask you a couple questions? <laughs> and I, do you believe, and I just went straight for the jugular. Do you believe Jesus is God? And this is, this is way before the Job, Zachariah discussion. And he's like, no, he is not God. He's the son of God. I was like, okay. So what would you do with uh, this passage, like John 1? It's like, well, that's oh. actually, and it gives the token response. Yep. Well, in, in, in the original language, that's actually not uh, an article. It's, it's a, uh, it's not the. And I was like, so you're telling me that the word uh is there. Like it's, it's teaching that it's not the God. He's like, yep, that's what it says. I'm like, hold on a second. Oh, this is good. And I got the Greek New Testament. So good. And because this is why context is king. In the beginning was the word. the God and the Word. Every other time in that verse, when Theos is used, it's articular. Yeah, it is. Until the very last, and you, so you, you could make a statement like, "Well, the author left off the article because he doesn't want Jesus to be the God," or you could flip that around and you could say, "Or it's very clear in context who the God we're talking about is. <laughs> it's the Lord. <laughs> it's." Jehovah, and he is that. So anyway, but yeah, I had a lot of fun combos with that guy. And he, he actually started sending me letters, trying to convince me. And every time I just keep sending back like, well, exegete this passage. And yeah. So that's the anecdote, Zachariah 4. Good anecdote. I like it. Yeah. Tim? What? Well, I know you, what do you, you got a face. <laughs> should, we, should we get back to Deuteronomy 6, like the whole point of this? So let me... <laughs> So what I think is interesting is there's a connection in the early chapters of Deuteronomy to the fear of the Lord. And the connection is between the fear of the Lord and hearing the Lord. And he walks very specifically through Old Testament stories as to why that connection exists. In fact, if you don't, you don't really hear, you're not really listening if the result is not loving him alone right and so what i like to say is you do not fear him if you do not hear him or if you hear him you will fear him mm -hmm. and and so why is the mm -hmm. command to shema it's not to ahav which is love right and it's because if you really listen to what god has said and i think the idea is that you understand who he is the only correct response if you truly understand who he is hmm. is to love him because he's the only one. And um, and so uh, it's, it's interesting to go back through the stories in like Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and the connection between hearing and fearing that they were supposed to have gotten at Mount Sinai, but the first generation was too afraid of the fire and the thunderings to really listen. So then what happens? They didn't learn the fear of the Lord. So when they were supposed to obey and go into the land, they disobeyed and then they all die in the wilderness yeah it's because they never and it's because they die in the wilderness because they didn't fear the lord and why did they not fear the lord they never heard the lord they never they didn't listen so i actually think a good application is like man you need to listen to what god has said like read your bible yeah look at who this guy is mm -hmm. yeah you know i was thinking through even just what you're saying about jesus being the lord in zechariah 14 and in 14 9 it does say in the lord shall be king over all the earth. 
it'll be in that day that the Lord is one and his name one. And this is the Lord's personal name, you know, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, in Zechariah 14.9. So, you know, who's going to be king over all the, the earth? You know, Jesus is going to be his arm that's ruling there on the earth. And who yeah. is he and how is he described? As the Lord. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting how you do have this Trinitarian idea in Zechariah 14 mm-hmm. that's arguing for, especially when you compare it to like Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, with, with where it's clearly in reference to like God the Father and the Lord is one. He is the only one, this wholesale complete devotion to God. Andy, cool. what uh, what translation you got over there? Uh, ESV. Ah, do you have a note that you want to make in that passage? Um, just an overall Bible study comment. Is what okay, because I, I would I'm actually interested if you after your comment if you go back to Deuteronomy because then I have a, a thought. But oh yeah, do, do your James first. So <clears throat> it's not actually James per se. What I what I think I want to I'm very appreciative that you did this, Doctor Little. So I have seen and heard Deuteronomy 6 for probably like many of our listeners many times in my life. And I've always heard, Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I've always heard that and thought, that's an odd way to say that. But, you know, God is one God. I think that's as far as it's gone. Not because I didn't care, I just didn't know there were questions to ask about that phrase. And then I've also been in James 2 where it says demons, even the demons, like, you believe there's that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. I've heard that you believe God is one, and I've always thought that's just a weird way of saying you believe there's a God that exists. But until you connected all three of these, I didn't see the echo of the Shema. And what I appreciate about this, and I want to point this out, is that um, if I were reading Deuteronomy 6.4, and it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and I thought to myself, that's weird, why does he say it that way? And then I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start thinking, well, what would that mean? And I'm, it's okay to think that. That's okay. So try to figure it out. But what you've essentially done is you've done a Bible study principle, which is using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And then you sort of did like a phrase study where you took that phrase and you followed it through the Scriptures. And then what you did is you let the Scriptures inform how a scriptural reader would have understood Deuteronomy 6. That was just really helpful. And I think that a listener out there, if you didn't see this, don't beat yourself up, but learn from Dr. Little here. What is he doing? He's taking that phrase. You probably have a Bible study with cross-references like I do. Follow those out. Try to figure that out. That's a really good Bible study principle. So thank you. I was very helped by that. And it's interesting, too. This just popped into my head as you were mentioning this. Who is the letter of James addressed to? Jews! The 12 tribes. And wouldn't you expect yep. that there would be a very Jewish flavor? And there is. You have Abraham, you have the Shema, mm-hmm. you have all of these elements that James is incorporating because he's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, which is fascinating to me. So anyway, mm-hmm. so are you back in Deuteronomy? I am. I'm is, there, Deuteronomy. is there a footnote at Deuteronomy 6.4 with multiple translations? So... Deuteronomy 6.4, yes, there is a footnote. Can you read through them? Yeah, so it says, the different, it gives me a little footnote here, and it says, other. so let me read the translation. Uh, Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it gives me possible translation, says, or it could say, the Lord our God is one Lord, or it could be translated, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or it could be translated, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Those are like, 
four four total options, the one in the text and three others. Oh, so it actually has the Lord alone in mm-hmm. the text. Yeah. That's unique. So yep. the reason why I wanted to note this is, be, one, because I think ESVs are very common translations, so they're going to yep. be interacting with, well, what translation do you have? Well, mine doesn't say that. And yep. what's actually interesting is this is in Hebrew. What is it, Dr. Lowell? It is a... What? You have oh, no idea where I'm going I don't know where I'm going, where you're going with it's this. It's a verbless clause, yes. except for... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you only, you only have one verb in this sentence. It's Shema. And then you have a bunch of nouns. You have Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord, one. Yeah. So, so how do you put all these yes, nouns together? Shema, Israel, Jehovah, Eloheinu. So like the Lord, our God, Lord, one. There's no ises in there. But that's that's the task of the interpreters to figure out are these like noun sentences with implied verbs? Like in Greek, you'd be like an implied a me. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to decide where that, and so you can hear that in all these translations. The Lord our God, the Lord is mm-hmm. one. They supplied yeah. a verb. Yep. You look at those other translations. The Lord our God is one Lord. They supplied it in a slightly different way. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. They supplied two. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. They supplied it, but on the first half, not the second half. So every one of those translations is reflecting an interpretive decision based on their rendering of the the language. And the reason I bring that up is not to scare someone like, man, which one's right? I don't know. Just to realize that every translation, every translation is making interpretive steps. And it is helpful not to necessarily learn Hebrew. You should. You can. Tim will teach you. Uh, But to understand what's actually there and to think through, like, okay, what is being said? And and maybe compare translations with other translations in your Bible study, too. Andy's over here just gawking at something. No, we we translate this verse in Greek. James 2? Well, no, the, the Shema, but I think it's... From the um, Gospels? Probably from the Gospels, when Jesus repeats it. But So I'm like, oh, I'll pull up that Septuagint here. And it's, it's this, there are no verbs, except it does put estin in, which is the, the is verb, but it puts it right at the end. So you have... He is one. You have akue Israel, kurias hatheus, hemon, kurias, heis, there's your one, estin. And then you're like, well, you got to put it together. So even in Greek, you're putting it together yourself. So I have another anecdote. Can I can I share another anecdote? I've got something I want to do at the end, but you okay, go so ahead. Okay, so anecdote. Listener, this is legitimately what it's like when you sit down with your friends <laughs> and you talk about the Bible in a thinklings group. Seriously, this is how it should go. You should be caffeinated. You should be talking about the Bible. This is good. I need a little more caffeine. So <laughs> here's do. a story. So there's, there's a vocab word or card that you will learn if you ever take Greek and Mounts, uh, Robert Mounts' book, The Basics of Biblical Greek, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bill, sorry. Bill, Bill, Robert's oh. his father. That's okay. Yeah, there's too many Mounts to keep track of. Did you get... Never mind. Go, 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 go. It's... <laughs> That's a whole host of other anecdotes. Anyway. <laughs> so... Abe Lincoln. Keep going. Go, Abe go, go. Lincoln. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're we're so far down the, the tunnel here. So, okay, <clears throat> back up. So there's a there's a vocab word for the word one, and the way that it's on the card is heis, mia, hen. Mm. There's three words that all mean one. Okay, mm-hmm. heis, mia, hen, and that last one, hen, is there's no h on the front of it. It's actually like in English it'd be like an e and an n, and there's a breathing mark that tells you to add the the hen part of it. So 
when you're learning vocab in Greek, most of them don't have three words with one definition. It's usually mm-hmm. one to one. So, you know, that one sometimes gets lost in translation. Uh, so I can remember. Oh, that was good. Two points, Charlie. So I can remember doing my homework with Low fruit. my friend, <laughs> Pastor Jonathan Fuller, in way back when, and in Andy's first Greek class. We're, oh. We were sitting in the library trying to translate these verses, and we were staring at this word forever. <laughs> hen. What's hen? And it, it looks like so many other things, like in is a preposition without the H sound, and it kind of is close to some other shortenings of words, and we're like, what is it? And we're looking so at our lexicon <laughs> and we can't find it because it's not listed by itself. It's listed in trifold with Hase uh, and Mia. So, and then of all people to walk in at the time, he was Dean Lance. Now he's Pastor Lance. He just comes strolling through the library <laughs> and we're like, Lance, Lance, Dean Lance, come help us. And we're like, and we've been, we've been staring at this for like 30, 40 minutes. Greek students, I hope you're listening. Greek ones. See, students. this is normal. I would have given up after about two and just thrown something down. Well, (laughs) what I would do now is just like, what passage is this? Gloss. Okay. Oh, that was illegal according to the rules of the class. Well, at that point, I didn't even have Bible software. I don't think I had a course. And the rule is still for my students, they can't touch it. Yeah, which is the way it should be. Because it makes you do the digging and the excavating that is worth. All right, finish the story. (laughs) Anyway, so Lance walks over and we're like, man, we're going to get some like deep answers. Like, haste me a hen. It's one. We're like, what? It's like, one, it's, it's one, like the number one. And we're just like, you're kidding. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's so dumb. Like, we should know that word. But yeah. So we, we spent, you know, forever trying to figure out this word, and it was just one. And now you remember it. I, so Greek students who are listening, if anyone else is learning remember Greek, hang in, in there. In Greek class, you would always read through the vocab words. Oh, yeah. And at the, when we would be getting ready for the next section of vocab, and the, there's the one day we're reading through, and you're like, thronos, throne. And you're like, hmm, I really wish there was a good way to remember that thronos means throne. Hmm, what does throne sound like? Hmm, man, thronos, throne. Hmm, okay, and he just went on. I thought that was so funny. Oh, I never <laughs> forgot that one either. Anyway. Horrendous. I still do that. I literally, we just had, th- well, you're listening later, but we just had Thronos the other day, Charlie. And now I just say Thronos, Throne. I don't know how you remember that. You probably want to think of a like idea. Okay, move on. And then like seven seconds later, someone starts chuckling. Get it. All right, let's let, let's let Tim finish up. Okay, Tim, what do you got at the end of this? So James chapter two, verse 14. What is a prophet, my brother? And if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, I believe. I believe. Well, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you do you really believe that God is is the Lord of Loam? And that's all that's really important. Well, do you see somebody who is in need? What do you do? Be warm and filled. Okay, and then he gives an illustration. So then we had our verse. We went to verse 18. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. 19, you believe that there is one God. Okay, the Lord alone. You believe that the Lord is alone. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I'm not getting into the whole faith without works and what is that, blah, blah, blah. I want to get to the illustration. Look at what he then does in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified? 
by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. So he goes to an Old Testament illustration. Now I want you to think through, okay, what does it mean? What does it mean that you truly, truly believe that the Lord is the Lord and he is the one, the only one that is the Lord alone? Okay, what do you really value in this life? So when we think of things that we value, and we think of particularly like, specifically like money, all right, and things, how important is money? How important are things? You know, as we think through Abraham and offering his son Isaac up on the altar, you know, God says, you have to give me, I want, I want you to give me your most precious possession. Have you ever thought through, what is your most precious possession? Think through Abraham, this wealthy man. Okay, he had a ton of stuff. He had a ton of servants, but he only had one son. This was his most precious possession. And what does he give to the Lord? Everything. Nothing matters except the Lord. Do you believe that the Lord is one? Do you believe in the Lord alone? So would you recite the Shema? Are you wholly devoted to the Lord? Are you going to cast aside the worldliness that so easily entangles uh, the Christian church? Throw it aside. Get rid of it. Okay? Recite the Shema. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.